Well, we started in Romans 7 last time we were together, and we're picking up in verse 14 today. But we saw that the law is good for one thing, and one thing only. And that was to help us to see our sinful condition. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, correctly, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, the person that's been born again, that's received Christ into their life, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, and the list continues on. Also in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth might be stopped, that is by spewing his own self-righteousness. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is simply one thing, the knowledge of sin. And so we saw in verse 12 last time that the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. The law is perfect. Don't use God's name in vain. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. It's perfect. You, you, you can't improve on that. We've all been made in God's image. All of us have God's conscience. We, we all can bear witness in our minds and in our spirits that, yes, we should not commit adultery, but we should be faithful. We should not steal. We should be honest. It's, it's holy. It's righteous. It's perfect. And the law speaks, and, and we say, yes, that is correct. But then and we saw in verse 13, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So here he, he makes it clear that did the law make me sin? No. The law revealed sin. You see, we all graded ourselves by the law of our own mind or comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. So we used our own mind and we we said, well, yeah, you know, I tell little white lies every once in a while and I should be, you know, I shouldn't do that. Yeah, I lust, you know, not more than the average red-blooded American boy, but, you know, I probably, probably shouldn't do that. And yeah, you know, I get angry and curse every once in a while, but you know, it's not like I do it every day, it's every other day. And I probably should stop that too. You know, I, I'm basically a good person with a few little flaws here and there. And I should cut it out. I should be better. That, that's sort of the law of our own mind judging us. But then we have the law of God and it's a mirror that we hold up and we realize No, 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 I am a sinner. And this is what he said, that sin is revealed by the law. We talked about last week how a person with a broken leg, they feel pain, but they don't know exactly what's wrong. But the x-ray reveals the break. Now, you don't get an x-ray and say, wow, that x-ray broke my leg. I came in here, I didn't have a broken leg. You took that x-ray and I'm walking out of the doctor's office with a broken leg. No, no, no. 
You came into the doctor's office with a broken leg. You just couldn't see deep enough. But the x-ray revealed all the way down to the bone and it showed what was already there. In the same way, the law helped us to see that we are not basically good people with a few flaws, but that we were sinners with a capital S. You know, have you ever bought a diamond? You know, what they do is they put the diamonds out. They don't put them on a white piece of paper, do they? Or they don't put them out on a uh, glass. What do they do? They always take the diamond and put it on the deepest, blackest velvet you've ever seen. I don't know where they get this black velvet, but it just seems blacker in the, in the jewelry stores than anywhere else. And then you put that diamond on that black, black velvet, and what happens? Wow, you see that diamond for all that it has to offer. It shows all of that luster. <clears throat> in the same way, when I, we put ourselves up against one another, <laughs> we don't see the full extent of our sin. But when we then are put on that, the law, if you would, the black velvet, and we put ourselves up against that, it's magnified what we truly are. And this is what he says, that once I saw, no, sin is in me. And then he says at the end of verse 13, that as I looked at the law, the commandment brought about in me to see that I am exceedingly sinful. That there is a serious, serious issue here that I am a sinner in need of a savior. In Galatians 3, verse 24, it says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so in essence, you say, man, I was living life in my own mind and you know, feeling like, yeah, I should be better, but, you know, I was hurting, I had pain, I, I knew things weren't quite right, but then the law came, and, and the law was perfect. It was holy, it was just, it was right. I got 100% truth, and it was healing, in a sense, to see that, wow, this pain I have, this suffering I'm going through, it's because there's a real serious issue of exceedingly sinfulness in me. And our first reaction is to say, law, you are wonderful. You are perfect. You, you've brought me out of darkness into the light. You've, you've helped me to see something that I never saw before, ever could have saw without you. I am listening to you, law. I am a sinner. Now, where do we go from here, law? <laughs> the law has nowhere else to go. It's a one-hit wonder. All it can do is say, you're a sinner, And then it fades out of the picture. It has no ability. Okay, law, you brought me to this point. Now, law, take me to that first step. We're going to learn in Romans 8, the law is weak. It has no ability now to help you take that first step. All it can do is bring you to the reality I'm a sinner. And once it's done its job, it's that tutor, it's tutored you. Galatians 3 says you no longer need a tutor anymore. Now you need to come to the Savior, to Jesus. And so in verse 14 today, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Paul said, the law brought me into a spiritual world I was unaware of. 
You know, today man often makes horrendous mistakes by not calculating the fact that he is spiritual or his wife or his children or his parents or his friends are spiritual. And Paul is saying, I was in the physical realm living in this earthly sense only. And and as I looked at the earth around me and I'm in this carnal flesh, things aren't that bad. They seem to be fairly good. But when the law came, and the law is spiritual, that I realized there's this spiritual aspect of me that is completely lost, completely damned, completely sinful. And, and when I look at the spiritual world, I'm in serious problem. I'm in serious shape here. I don't, I'm a sinner. I'm carnal. I'm sold under sin and the bondage. I'm enslaved to sin. You know, it, this is sort of an interesting thing because man is a very complicated being, but he's also an amazing being. We shouldn't be surprised at that because we're made in the image of God. But man can do extraordinary things. You know, being made in the image of God, we have an ability to create, to invent, to, to think outside the box in outrageous ways. You could get a man who's even an atheist or not a follower of God at all, but yet if he puts his mind to it, he could come out with equations and calculations to build an amazing bridge or a giant skyscraper or a shuttle to shoot into space. Men willing to work hard and, and, and do the labor can come up with amazing inventions and cures to diseases. Man, man's pretty amazing in his carnality, <laughs> in his fleshliness, in his own strength, in his own mind. And I I don't want to take away from that. We've been made in God's image, and with that comes pretty amazing creatures we are. But yet, as powerful as we are in that ability to advance ourselves in many earthly things, yet we are conquered (laughs) by the simplest of sins. You know, I think of O.J. Simpson, sort of a superhero, if you would, a superhuman athlete. He does incredible, extraordinary things on the football field. But yet that little mouse of jealousy (laughs) creeps in the back door and conquers him. He kills the lion, but the the little mouse of jealousy takes him down. I think of Pete Rose, the great legendary baseball player, Truly should be on the front door of the Baseball Hall of Fame, but he's not there at all. Why? Because that little cockroach of greed and gambling took him down. As of late, Tiger Woods, sort of the greatest athlete maybe of all times, as the century will play out. But yet that little tiny ant... (laughs) of lust has conquered him. How many extraordinary scientists were conquered by a very simple vice? How many great intellectuals were destroyed by some nagging little lust? As powerful as we are in this carnal earthly realm, we're not just earthly. (laughs) We're spiritual. Often kids grow up bitter, at their dads, 
And their dads are going, man, I bought you the best clothes. I fed you with the best food. I put you in the best schools. I put you on the greatest vacations. I, you know, I provided for you in a way that my dad never provided for me. And he's looking at the physical realm on an earthly standard. I was an amazing dad, far better than my dad or my grandpa. Anybody that I know was to you. But yet the kids are saying, spiritually, you added nothing to me. Emotionally, you did not satisfy me. Those earthly physical things are almost irrelevant to me. At this moment in my life, there, there, there wasn't the spiritual connection with you. There wasn't this emotional connection with you. And, and again, we often see that with our spouses or with our children or with other friends that on an earthly level, there is a connection there, but it's a very unsatisfying connection. We need to understand, and Paul is saying, the law brought me to that realization that it wasn't just what it said, it was spiritual. When it spoke to me about, don't use God's name in vain, it's, it spoke spiritually to my earthly mind, my earthly heart. And I realized there's something spiritual being spoken to me, but I'm, I'm trying to address it in a physical way, and it's not happening. I need to be spiritually healed by God. I need to be forgiven by God. And and notice he, he realized at that point, I'm sold under sin. Then to verse 14, I'm in bondage. I'm in slavery to sin. C.S. Lewis said this, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. <laughs> no man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good. And once we say, well, I'll just stop that, all of a sudden you realize, I can't. It looks so simple. It looks like I just turn that off and life goes on, no big deal. But I I realize now that I try to turn that off, I can't. I realize I try to stop that, I can't. Well, Paul goes on in verse 15 today saying, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, That I practice. Now, Paul is speaking here, and he is sort of trying to figure this out. And if you would, he's got it figured out, but he's taking us through the process of what he went through. Now, some foolishly here try to say that Paul is referring back to himself as a non-Christian, and that this was a non-Christian struggle before Christ came into his life. And that would be very foolish to do so because as you read chapter 6 and 7, he's clearly made it abundant that he's been brought into the Christian life. But as a Christian, what has he discovered? That what I'm doing or what I, I will to do, I'm not able to do it. And it's not just I'm not doing the good things I should do. I'm doing the things I hate. I'm doing the things that are evil. Those are pretty strong words. 
And he begins here to, to discover something. He begins to say that there in verse 18, for I know that is in me, hold it, stop, parentheses, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells. And then he goes on to say, for to will is present with me. And what's his conclusion there as he comes? He he realizes that, hold it, I'm willing to do good. But yet the good I'm willing to do, I'm not doing. So what is it here that I'm, I'm figuring out? That there's something more happening than, than just meets the eye. You know, I look into the mirror and I see Paul, the Apostle Paul. And if you were to interview me, Paul, what do you want? I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I want to serve him and live holy and obedient and righteous. My heart's so willing to obey him. Well, what's your biggest struggle right now? The things I don't want to do, I do. (laughs) Things I hate, that's what I'm doing. The very evil that I despise, I'm practicing. What am I to do with this? And what does he come to understand there in verse 20? Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 21, I find then a law. Now, when you translate a text, a translator will look at a particular, in this case, Greek word, and say, we're going to translate it a certain way in the English until it's totally used in a different context, and it's forcing us to translate it a different way. And as you know, every language continues in evolving. And so here, in verse 21, he's no longer referring to the law as the Old Testament law, but the word we would use today, would, verse 21, would be, I find then a principle that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. What do I find? It's, it's not me. It's not me who's sinning. Because I have a perfect willingness to submit, to obey, to love, to serve God. But yet, I'm not doing that. <laughs> So what am I finding here? That I'm finding that in me also is dwelling this sinful person. Now, for some of you, you're saying, yeah, I I know Romans 7. I already understand this concept. For many of you, it's going to be a real revelation. And that is that there's more than just one facet of you. There is you, the Spirit. And when you submitted your life to Christ, if you've done that, if not, you'll have the opportunity today. But you gave your life to Christ. The Bible says that God's Spirit came into your life, circumcised that old flesh. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, all the old things passed away. All things became new. Now that's only in spirit. You say, well, I got born again last night. All things became new. I went home and all my credit cards were paid off. The house was clean. This tattoo of a naked girl I got back in the Navy was gone and everything's new. Well, it didn't happen that way, did it? Really, in only one aspect did all things become new. And that was that your spirit is now born again. That is the real you that's going to live for eternity. 
But equally, what do we understand is that our flesh did not get an ounce better. That we were born into this world with a sinful flesh, a sinful body. And guess what? After we got born again, our flesh was just as sinful. And I think Christians often get this confused. They think, well, as I'm obeying God with my spirit, I'm little by little saving my body too. I've been a Christian 10 years and my flesh now is 25% saved. And another 10 years, another 25%. After 40 years of being a Christian, my body's 100% saved now along with my spirit. That's what we would like to believe, wouldn't it? But the Bible tells us about our flesh. It continues to grow in corruption. Our stinking, weak, carnal, sinful flesh is day by day getting more that way. I remember years ago asking Gail Irwin, he was at that point, I was in my 20s and he was, you know, 30, 40 years in the Lord beyond me. And I said, well, you know, at what point, Gail, did did you really, you know, start living this holy, righteous life, you know? I mean, after decades of being a Christian, when does it start getting easier? And he goes, well, let me ask you, when do you struggle with sin the most? Well, when I'm weak, when I'm tired, when I'm achy. Let me tell you what happens every decade as you get older. (laughs) You get weak, you get tired, you get achy. It's like, are you telling me it's going to get harder as I go on? Yep. It's an uphill battle until we leave this body to be with the Lord. And it's like, oh, that's a depressing thought. That's the reality. We're fighting the fight. And we got to keep fighting the fight. And it's interesting to see many Christians who, you know, put their 20 years in. You, you, it, this is, this, you know, being a Christian is not government uh, retirement plan here. You don't put your 20 years in the military and you get partial retirement. Get your 30 years in, you get your 80% retirement with benefits. It doesn't work that way. And I, you know, we've been going now 25 years as a church. And it's, it's interesting to see a lot of people saying, well, I served the Lord for 20 years and I'm taking my retirement plan now. And then all of a sudden they start struggling with sins in their 40s and 50s that they never struggled with before. And they're going, man, I was more obedient as a Christian 25 years ago. What's going on? Guys, our retirement plan is when we leave this body to be with the Lord. Until then, we've got to fight the fight. We've got to continue to serve one another. We've got to continue to worship the Lord with all our being. And so... Here, Paul is coming to understand, I've realized something, that it's not me, that is my spirit that's sinning against God, because I'm fully submitted to him. But what did I discover? It's another part of me, and I'm not going to say this man have two natures or one nature, I'm not going to get into that argument. There's just a whole aspect of me that's sinning, that it's sin that's in my body. You know, you're here this morning, setting and listening to the sermon. Do you guys understand what a miracle that is? Your body is sold under sin, under bondage. Paul said, that is in me, that is in my flesh. No good thing dwells. Do you you understand there's not one ounce of your flesh that's helping you hear this message right now? This is 100% of you fighting your flesh and winning. For you to come to church today, it was a miracle of miracles. We are in this sinful body that wants to do anything and everything but what God wants it to do. 
Read the newspaper, read the magazine, watch TV, go walk on a beach. You'd rather do sit-ups. I mean, there's not one part of your flesh that is not completely contrary to the will of God. Every time you read the Bible, every time you pray, every time you step out of your comfort zone to share the Lord with somebody, it's a miracle of miracles of miracles, God's Spirit overcoming this incredibly powerful, wicked, evil flesh. And so we're in this sinful body. We're in this sinful world where the Bible says we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We're in this world where Satan is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We have everything going against us. We are literally put in an environment to sin. We've got the body for sinning. We've got the world that wants us to sin. We've got the devil putting pressure on us to sin. There really is not a whole lot in our favor to not sin. Just one thing. God's spirit causing you to be born again, to live in you. You see, Paul obviously was a Christian here because he had a willingness to obey God. He, he was wanting to serve the Lord. Now, before you were a Christian, you were sinning and you didn't care. Didn't go to church today. I didn't read the Bible. I cursed. I lied a little bit or whatever. Who cares? That's the way you live here. Everybody does it. No, there was no struggle going on. But it's after you become a believer that now you know God's will. God's spirit lives in you and you want that harmony, that peace with God. And, and when your body is sinning, it's putting your spirit in bondage. Now, I want to make this clear here where Paul says in verse 20, what do I find then that it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me? Hey, Paul is not saying he's not responsible. (laughs) He's not saying that he's not affected. He's making a clear distinction here that he's not in this rebellious attitude towards God as his body is. Some of you here might be in rebellion today. Some of you might be, just came to the point going, forget God, I don't care what he thinks anymore, I don't care about those Christians, I'm gonna live life the way I want and do my own thing, and you, you are in rebellion. And your body is thus being, you know, right in line with your spirit. But for the majority of you here today, you're, you're like Paul, your spirit's willing. I want to live for God. I want to serve God. I want to obey God. I I love it when I'm holy and righteous and pure and honest and faithful and good and self-controlled. And man, it's just, I'm such a blessing to, to myself and everybody around me when I'm walking in that spirit and my flesh is not having its way. But the Bible makes it very clear. Whatever our body does, it affects our spirit. And if we sow to the flesh... Of the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. As we sow to the flesh, we grieve the spirit. We quench the spirit. We hinder growth. We stop fruitfulness. I mean, there are just the effects of of sin just continue to go on. So in no way do I want you to leave here saying, well, it's not me who sinned. It was my body. So, you know, that's Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy it's talked about in the first century. First John was dealing with it where people came from these 
very teachings of Paul and said, well, my spirit's completely obedient with God. It's just my body that's sinful. Can't do anything about that. So whatever my body does, that's one thing. But, you know, my spirit's right with God. And John in 1 John makes it very clear. No, 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 no. You're, you're still one in this human body right now. And whatever your body, soul, or spirit does, it's all equally effective. But Paul does say, look, it's not that I've all of a sudden became this rebellious, disobedient person in art. I, I need to cut it and calculate it out that it's this sinful body that I need to deal with. It's not, it's not a willingness. You know, often people are like that. The, the wife would look at the husband. Well, if you were more willing, you could be a better husband. If you had a greater desire, you would stop treating me like that. If you had more knowledge of how to be a better husband, you would be a better husband. Sometimes those things are the case, but for the most part, Paul is making it clear here. It's not about a greater desire. I have a perfect desire. It's not about a willingness. I have a perfect willingness. It's not about knowledge. I'm 100% in agreement with God. What is the issue here? The issue is power. (laughs) I don't have the power to stop the one and start the other. I am completely just watching this thing happen. I'm watching my spirit wanting to do the will of God and I'm watching my flesh out of control and I can't stop the flesh and I can't, I'm, I'm just observing this right now. And in verse 21, I'm just observing there's another principle that evil's present with me, the one who wills to do good. In verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. It's not about knowledge, it's not about desire. I delight in it. I know it. It's the law. In verse 23, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So I I see it. I I see this principle going on in my hands, in my feet, in my mind. Well, you, you really see that when you try to stop and pray. If you ever try to just stop and say, I'm gonna spend some time in prayer, have you ever seen how weird your mind can be? I mean, you can think up some bizarre things. Your mind is like going, you're not going to commune with God. And all the weirdness that's in your flesh just starts coming out. Or you try to just spend some time in the word and all of a sudden that to-do list that your wife couldn't get you to remember for the last 10 years, you remember it all perfectly. All the honeydews. It's, it's bizarre how weird our flesh is. And this is what Paul is saying here, is that my flesh is just completely bizarre and it's weird and it, it's got a mind of its own. And, and this law that's governing my hands, my feet, my brain, my mouth, my ears, it's, it's, it's totally contrary to the will of God. And it's, I'm in captivity, he says. Notice in verse 23, this, this flesh This law of my mind, it's bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. It's really there. My body did not get saved, not even a little bit. Is it ever going to get saved? You know what's interesting up to this point? 
chapter 7 is, is a unique chapter because in this chapter, Paul uses the word law 23 times. That's a record. I don't think he even uses that word in entire books that he wrote. But here's a really bizarre thing. Up to verse 23, Paul uses the word I 30 times. He uses me, my, myself, I 47 times in 23 verses. Isn't that nuts? You know what he mentions zero time? The Spirit, Jesus. Look at it again here. Just Let's go to verse uh, 14 there. For I know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For I, what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. And what I hate, I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that in me, And he keeps going on. He's just so focused on himself. And you feel the tension. It's like a rubber band being turned and turned and turned. I, me, my, my flesh, my heart, my body, love in my members. And and you sense this stress. I, I don't think you would see Paul using I, me, or myself in the whole book of Ephesians that many times. In the whole book of whatever the other, First Corinthians. But here we see Paul, he's just fixated, going, I understand it, I, I, I can see it, but I have no power whatsoever to deal with this whatsoever. I, I have absolutely no answer. But then we have a refreshing verse 24. What does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am. <laughs> Explanation point. He finally just comes to say, I'm wretched. This word means what we would think it means, wretched. But it's also a term of a soldier in the midst of the battle who collapses from exhaustion. Paul said, I'm just in this fight, in this battle as a warrior, and I just give up. Enemy, kill me. You know, when we focus on ourselves. It's going to do one of two things. Either we're going to figure out how to focus on this thing and we're isolating it and it's our whole focus to stop this thing and and I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to get rid of this and do that and and I got my thing. And as long as you focus on that one thing, you you can conquer that one thing for a while. Unfortunately, life doesn't let us just focus on one thing all the time, does it? You know, you, you go to the rehab center and you live in the rehab house for three months and you're just focusing on not doing drugs. You know, if you focus on that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you're living in this environment that's all focused on that, you, you know, there can be some success. But as soon as you get out of the rehab house, guess what? <laughs> Life's complicated. You got bills and you got relationships and you got things, you got a, phone calls and all these things you got to do. And, and you come to that place to realize... I can't put 100% effort on that. But a lot of times people say, man, I'm just going to focus on this and I'm going to focus on me 
And I'm going to make sure my mouth and my mind and my hands and my body and I got this discipline, I got these rules and these rituals and these regulations and, and man, and look at me. Wow, I'm better than all of you guys right now. And that turns into self-righteousness. We can become Pharisees. Lord, thank you. I'm not like these other guys. I used to be like them, but I focused. I'm disciplined. And now, Lord, thank you that I am superior to these other small Christians that I know. I hope they'll follow my example and someday become equal to me. Time they get to me where I'm at, I'll be 10 steps ahead of them. But, uh, or what happens is you focus and you give it your 100% best and you fail and you give up. You're just like, I gave it 110% and I did it for months and I did stop this. And, you know, before I knew it, I had no furniture left in the house. Nothing was stumbling me. The carpet was stumbling me. I ripped that out. And then, you know, I, I just ended up living in a cave and, and even there I still sinned. And you end up either in self-righteousness or in complete depression. Paul came to the place where he just exhausted himself. I, I, what I don't want to do, I do. What I don't, I do want to do, I'm not doing. I, oh, wretched man that I am. What's the answer? I, I have no answer. I just collapsed. And then for the first time, he uses the right preposition here. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice, notice he didn't say, what shall I try next? What's my next course of action that I should investigate? He realizes that the answer to conquering the sin that dwells in his flesh has nothing to do with him. His eyes now gets off himself. After saying I and me and my and myself 47 times, he now says, who? It's not going to be me. The answer is not within me. Whatever the answer is, it's not going to be from my resources out. It's going to be Somebody else coming in and saving me from this sinful condition. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You know that term body of death there? It's an interesting term. It's, it's at a point in history where they would take a murderer who had killed somebody and take the murdered body and put the murdered body to the murderer face-to-face, torso-to-torso, hands-to-hands, and wrap them together and allow the decaying body to kill the murderer. The murdered body to kill the murderer. And Paul is saying, that's, that's what I feel like. I've been born again. All things become new. I have the Spirit of God living in me, and I have this wonderful desire to live holy and righteous and just, and I have this dead corpse suffocating me, mouth-to-mouth, hands-to-hands, body to body. And I'm having to carry around this, this decaying, rotting flesh that is growing in corruption. Boy, Paul here is really saying something I think we all feel. I mean, anybody out here saying, wow, Christians really struggle with that? The things they don't want to do, they do. The things they don't want to do, they don't do. I've been a Christian 20 years. I've never really experienced that. If there's anybody here that can say that, you come up and preach. I, I think we... I think we all identify with that, don't we? There's no sin that's not all common to, to common to all men. We, we all are equally weak. All of our flesh is the same. 
We all have these moments of just help me from myself. My worst enemy is me. (laughs) The most evilest thing on earth is me. The worst enemy in my life is my mind, (laughs) my mouth, my body, Lord. And then Paul, in verse 25, comes to the right conclusion. What? I thank God. Through, or because of, on behalf of, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know what? I'm just going to get my eyes off of me. (laughs) There it is, guys. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look through Romans all the way up to chapter 12. Paul's going to take us through the steps of winning over our flesh. But he doesn't want to get there quickly. He wants it to be established the right motive. Not just the doing. You see, that's where religion comes in and just says, hey, we just care that you got a haircut like this and a suit like this and a briefcase like this and you're out there Saturday morning knocking on doors. Just do it. All we care about is that you do the religious things we want you to do. God, for him, why you do what you do is just as important what you do. And so Paul here is is wanting to establish the very important fact that if you're here today saying, I want to live a holy life for God, why? Hopefully it's because you love God, because he's your savior. That God so loved me, he sent his only begotten son that I would not perish, but have everlasting life through his death and resurrection. And that the answer today for me is to get my eyes off of me and my weaknesses and my shortcomings and my failures, as difficult as they are, as painful as they are, as real as they are, as damaging as they are, I, 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 I can't implode on myself. Me and my and I and my woes and my sins and my struggles. I gotta get my eyes on Jesus right now. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, the anointed one, my savior. Thank you that you died on the cross for me. In Colossians 2, it says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? The Bible says it's by putting faith in the grace of God that we're saved. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says very emphatically, not of ourselves. It was a gift of God. The thief on the cross, his hands are tied, his feet are tied. Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because the thief on the cross, not one ounce of himself saved himself. It was 100% the grace of God, the goodness of God, and it was God's gift to him, eternal life. That thief who was mocking Jesus a few minutes earlier is going to be in the same heaven as you and me. Why? Because it's not of his efforts, it's not of his works that he was saved. It was a gift of God. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did we get saved? It was by just saying, God, I'm a sinner, but I believe you're a savior of sinners. I have, my life has been full of sin, and I believe that your death and your resurrection has paid for my sin. And now as Christians, 
We, we stand as Christians. The very first day, I'm a Christian right now. I just received Christ. How did I become a Christian? Not of myself. It's a gift of God. Not of my works, lest anyone should boast. Now I'm going to take the first step as a Christian. As I receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so now I walk in him. How am I successful the first day as a Christian? By his grace. Not of myself. A week, a month, 10 years. You see, when we get to the pearly gates, we're not going to be saying, praise me, praise me. I'm glad I was so disciplined and I memorized the Bible so well and I lived so obediently as a Christian. The only song we're going to be singing is Amazing Grace. That grace started my salvation and it's by God's grace that I will end. But the, the point, the very first point, wherever you're at in your depression over your wretchedness, and we all get there, we should get there every day, Be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. (laughs) Even when we're not fulfilling the lust of our flesh, it doesn't mean they're not there. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 5.16, Paul said, I walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Notice here, it doesn't say the flesh is minimized, the flesh goes away. Why you're not fulfilling the lust of your flesh, it's screaming to be fulfilled. The flesh is saying, I would do what I want to do. And as you're obeying God, it's still screaming the whole time, fighting you. The, every inch of the way you're walking in the Spirit, your flesh is fighting you. But what do we come to, to know? We come to get our eyes off ourselves and on Jesus. He who began this good work is what? He's going to complete it. You know what? I became a Christian today in this very second. I'm a born-again believer. And what did I discover? that all my sins have been paid for. But what do I understand tomorrow as I take the next step? That those sins also were paid for. A week as a Christian, those sins were also paid for. That Jesus on the cross didn't just die for my sins up to the point I became a believer, but he died for all my sins till the day I leave this body. And that the joy as Christians that we have is that Whatever our shortcomings, sins, failures are, Christ has already done the work on the cross. And that we have to come back to that point to to believe in the grace of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see there, get your eyes on our great high priest. Don't give up. In essence, he says, don't throw in the towel. Because Jesus is Jesus and he's a wonderful and great high priest, you don't have to give up on your wretchedness. In verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows the pressure you're under in this sinful body. In Psalm 103, it says the Lord knows our frame. As a father pities a child, so the Lord pities us. And what does he do? He crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies. God's not shocked by your weakness. He knows you through and through. And so as a father pities his child, the little child falls down and skins his knee. Here's a Band-Aid. Two seconds later, the child falls down, skins the other knee. Here's another Band-Aid. 
What if that little child came in going, all I do is fall down and make you have to put band-aids on me. I give up. Just let me die. <laughs> it's like, boy, that's pretty pessimistic being two and a half years old. But, uh, I mean, what would we say? It's like, you know what? I, I saw these stumblings coming in your life as you learned to walk. And that's why I have a big box of band-aids. You're going to stumble many more times. Before you leave my care, there'll be many more band-aids. Kid falls into the mud. Oh, just give up on me, Dad. Throw me in the trash can. I'm not worthy. It's like, uh, we, we got a hose over here and a shower, and uh, I don't think we have to give up quite yet. You know, I, I think we can be foolish sometimes. We just need to understand that he, he loves us as a father. He's crowned us ahead of time with loving kindness and tender mercies. And back in Hebrews 4, knowing we have a high priest who's experienced the pressures of, in, of being in human flesh, although he did not sin, he knows the pressure to be pushed to the very nth degree. And in verse 16, So let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What is the answer? Going strongly, boldly, bravely into that throne of grace. Believing God loves you. Believing God's for you. Believing God understands us in our weakness. Now, again, I don't want to minimize sin. You're going to reap what you sow. You sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. We, we should definitely take sin seriously because we will pay the consequences of our foolishness or mistakes or sins or whatever you want to call them. So we we can't say, well, God understands, no big deal. It's a big deal. And as we go on in Romans, we're going to see that God's spirit living in you is enough power to conquer your flesh from now until the day you leave and be with the Lord. I don't think we'll ever do it perfectly. I think we'll have some high heights of obedience. And I think in our lifetime, we'll still have some low lows of disobedience. And God will be with us through the highs and the lows. But either way, you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But the first step is to get our eyes off of ourselves, to exhaust ourselves today of our own self-will. Yeah, you may be a rocket scientist and get a space shuttle (laughs) into outer space, but yet you're not going to overcome that lust or that lying or that greed. And you come to that place of just saying, I give up. My eyes are on you, Jesus. I'm, I'm laying down here and totally exhausted of my own abilities. I'm looking to you to be my savior. You saved me to be born again. And now I need you to save me today against my own sin that dwells in this body. I just thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And next week, we're going to get into chapter eight where we come to that first place to realize there is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ. God is for us. Who can be against us? To understand, I mean, you're, you're, imagine you're in a battle and here comes the enemy. You're fighting against the enemy and you have a sense that all your fellow soldiers don't like you. And they're disgusted with you. And they don't even want to fight next to you and they hate the fact that you even have the same uniform on as you. How, how, how confident would you be fighting in that battle? You're wondering if you're going to get shot in the back. <laughs> you wonder, it's like, is this even worth I mean, it would be, morally, it would just undermine the fact that you could advance and fight the enemy. 
You have to know that your team's on your team, right? And this is Satan's first step to undermine you is to think that God hates your guts. Yeah, you're a Christian. I'm going to have to take you to heaven. I'm not happy about that. But yeah, you got saved somehow. I don't know how you figured out the born again thing, but you're born again, taking you to heaven. Don't like it. Really don't want to deal with you. You annoy me. But go ahead, try to live the Christian life. I'm here, but I don't like it. I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? God loves us. He cares for us. And he he has nothing but wonderful good thoughts about you. You're his precious child. You are his bride. He is our shepherd. We can just jump into his arms. There's no condemnation to us who become born-again believers. But unfortunately, chapter 7 sort of ends weird. I, you know, I wish it ended just after that first sentence of verse 25. And thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, explanation point, amen, let's end the chapter. But he doesn't do that. Notice how he ends it. So then, I sort of hear Eeyore, so then, with the mind on myself, serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Ah, sort of a defeating end note, isn't it? What, what is Paul saying here? Guys, the struggle goes on. <laughs> you understand now, it's not you, it's sin that dwells in you. You understand your eyes are on the Lord and he's going to save you even from yourself, even from your own sinful body. But it doesn't cure it, does it? He's saying that this principle is going to go on until you leave this body. It's happening a day after you became a Christian. It's going to be happening 50 years from now. If you've been a Christian for 70 years, you're still going to have the law of sin in the members of your body. And you're going to be, you know, 99 years old going, God, I've been serving you for 80 years and I'm still struggling with this lust. I'm still struggling with this anger. I'm still struggling with cursing. Man, I figured 70 years after being a Christian, there'd be some relief. What's going on? No. Our body is just as sinful. And he's saying, this is something we have to live with until the day we leave this body and are present with the Lord. We got to continue to fight the good fight. Amen? Till then, get our eyes on the Lord. There's no condemnation. And where our sin abounds, his grace abounds more. And Lord, we come this morning into that throne of grace, boldly looking to you to give us mercy and grace and help in our time of need. Lord, no doubt today, Lord, there's many weary, exhausted soldiers here today. No doubt this is a word in season to some who are getting ready to to lose their confidence in you. And here you are, the great, wonderful high priest saying, don't let go. Don't get discouraged. I'm with you. You who began that good work, you are going to complete it. You who forgave us of our first sin is going to be there forgiving us of our last sin. You who called us in your grace at the first day is still calling us by your grace at the last day. That when our strength has failed, your strength has not failed that it's never been about our righteousness. It's always been about your righteousness. It's never been about our self-strength. It's always been about your strength of the Spirit through your grace. And we just come before you today with this wonderful (laughs) 
healing scripture on many wounded souls. And we ask that the healing balm would do its work. Satan trying to bring confusion. The word of God brings clarity. Set us free. You said we'd know the truth and the truth would set us free. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is your opportunity. Lord, forgive me of my sin. I surrender my life to you. I understand today through the message, the gospel, that I need to give my life to you and you need to be my savior. Through your death and resurrection, I receive it. I submit my life to you from this day forward. If you're a Christian here today and and you're just in the dumps, whether you're in the valley of the shadow of death, he's there with you. As equally when you were on the mountaintop. The Lord has never going to leave you nor forsake you. And just get your eyes upon him today. Lord, I put my eyes on you. I'm going to get him off my flesh, <laughs> off my weakness, off my shortcomings. I'm going to get him upon you and know that you're for me. You're not against me. There's no condemnation, quite the opposite. You're a wonderful father who crowns me right now with loving kindness and tender mercy. I receive that right now and thank you. And through the spirit of God and through the grace of the spirit, Lord, you would give me more fruitfulness than I've ever had in my life, in the word, in prayer, and coming to hear the sermon preached, Lord, to co- going to witness, Lord, and all the wonderful fruits that come from an obedient life, Lord, we ask for more and more. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you richly in the name of Jesus. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lord. <laughs>